there, I'm Leah Ben Miller, the worship leader of the local church, and you're listening to the local church podcast featuring the messages from our Sunday liturgy. The local church is a bold, inclusive faith community based in Chatham County, North Carolina, and our mantra is our mission, love where you are. We gather for affirming, anchoring, and empowering worship every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at Woods Charter School and online via Facebook Live and YouTube. No matter where you find yourself physically, spiritually, or emotionally, you belong at the local church. And we're so glad you're here. first scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Second scripture reading is from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17. You might say that this is Jesus' family tree. It's kind of lengthy, so hang in there. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father father of Aram, and Aram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salatiel, and Salatiel the father of Zerubbabel, 
and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Ayud, and Ayud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, Joseph, the husband of Mary, who bore Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So all of the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. This is the word of God for all of God's creation. Thanks be to God. Show of hands, how many of you uh, have started putting up your Christmas lights? Yeah, yeah. Um, I took a walk yesterday in my neighborhood, and uh, I saw people dragging out their large storage bins to the sidewalk, right, standing and staring up at their house, making rough measurements, some folks on ladders, and, and I saw my favorite deflated inflatables adorning yards. It's, it's a metaphor. I, I, I get that energy. I feel that vibe quite a bit, the, the, the deflated inflatables. Um, so who's got lights up? We're going to have to do a, a TLC light tour one night, right? Where we can just go around and have some cups of Christmas cheer and see each other's lights. Sound like fun? Yeah. Um, we put up our lights on, uh, on Friday night. Eliza, you got your hand up? That's right. That's right. We do. We have our lights up. We didn't waste any time. We don't necessarily, um, well, we didn't necessarily plan it this way, uh, but over the last few years, we have, uh, we've added to our display every year. Anybody do this? Just a little bit more. Yeah. Amber's nodding her head like, oh yeah, this, this is me. It's me. I'm the problem. It's me. Um, and, uh, and our house is uh, by no means the Griswold house. You got to have goals though, right? Um, you got you to gotta start somewhere. And so we did. We started a few years ago with just some nice lit garland on the front porch hanging down. Um, and then uh, uh, the year later, we added one of those spinny projection things that you can put on your house, you know? And um, uh, uh, the kind with six different designs that you can change out. And of course, I had to have the Disney one with, uh, with variations of Mickey's head. It's the best. Um, funny story about that. Uh, I preached on it a few years ago, the, the Mickey spinning thing. We were at House of Ops about how I'd bought it on clearance the year before and added it to our display. And um, I preached on it during Advent. And not even a week later, somebody stole it right from our front yard. And so I'm not saying it was any of you, but... <laughs> Y'all are the only ones who knew that I had it. So if that was you, all is forgiven. There's plenty of grace. But um, we, uh, we started with uh, the garland draped um, with lights and then the Mickey projection. And, and last year, we entered the inflatable game. Uh, it got real uh, with a four-foot-tall inflatable cat that Emma has named Callie. Anybody, anybody into the infl- inflatables? No, just me? 
Really? Y'all, y'all too classy for that? Okay, Sarah, Amber, okay, good, good. And, uh, and this year, we decided to up the ante again with some super classy icicle lights uh, adorning the top of our front porch and a Moravian star that's set to arrive tomorrow. We're coming for you, Clark Griswold. But, um, but each year, we're adding a little bit more. We're creating something new out of what has been. Each year, we're taking our history and building upon it, building toward a future that is even brighter and more beautiful than the year before, which, believe it or not, believe it or not, in that long list of names and people of so-and-so begetting so-and-so that Julie read so well for us. Where's Julie? Where is she? So well for us this morning. Uh, uh, in that scripture, that's exactly what's happening as we mark this morning, the first Sunday of Advent. But first, we need to talk about Advent a little bit. Thank you, Leah, for introducing it so well this morning. If you've, uh, if you've hung out with a local church for, for any number of years, uh, Advent probably isn't new to you, but, but I also recognize that there are some faith traditions that just don't do Advent. And so if you need a refresher or a quick rundown, here you go. The Big C Church, in its wisdom through the ages, from generation to generation, has set aside this four-week season in the liturgical calendar, the four weeks before Christmas, to pause, to stop, to listen, to watch, and to wait. It's in this season that we take a look around at our world, the world outside and the world within, and realize, discover anew that all is not as it should be. We lean into that tension. We really name that discomfort. We name the truth of that middle space, that we are a long way from where we've been, and yet still a long way from where we need to be. So in the meantime, we find ourselves in this middle space. We find ourselves in between. We wait. What is it we're waiting for? What is it we're longing for? The word Advent literally means coming or arrival. Advent means coming or arrival. And it's this season in which we not only wait for the, for, for the hope of Christmas and the, the coming of the Christ child, But we also wait for the arrival of God's promised day. We look ahead to the arrival of God's promised day when Christ comes again and puts all things right, when all things are as they should be, when all things are made new. In the words of Julian of Norwich, who we talked about last week, all manner of things are fully and finally well. That's God's promised day of which the arrival is what we're waiting for. So we find ourselves in the middle, in the middle between what has been and what will be. And it's in the, in the middle also of the hustle and bustle of the holidays, the full schedules and the cookie exchanges and the secret Santas and the Cyber Monday deals and, and Mariah Carey on repeat. Anybody else? Not me. Definitely not me. Um, but all the things, the, the power and the purpose of Advent here in the middle of all of this is that it beckons us to slow down enough that we might carve out space in our lives to name not only our deep longing for God to come close to us, but also our deep longing for God to come near and to be made local in our world. And it's in the middle of this story that we find ourselves of love coming local. We're caught up in the middle of the Christmas story, a story of tension, a story of longing, a story of of waiting, of, of confusion and courage, of curiosity and hope. Because in so many ways, these stories are our stories. And as we lean into this season, we become a part of this story's unfolding. As we lean into this season, we become a part of this story's unfolding. And it's from this middle space that we introduce our series for the season of Advent, From Generation 
to generation. From generation to generation. It's a reminder of how our lives, our histories, our stories, our actions are interconnected and woven together, past, present, and future, received in the past, created anew in us in the present, and passed down in the future, passed on from generation to generation. This morning's theme is this. There's room for every story. From generation to generation, there's room for every story. That's where our Advent journey begins this morning. But before we look to the future and the arrival of God's promised day, we have to look back to what has brought us here, to who, to whom, to to whom has brought us here. That's our work this morning. Before we get into that, I want to again offer a word of welcome, echoing Leah's welcome. My name is Brent. I have the great joy of serving as the pastor here at the local church. And we hope for three things every time you connect with us in any way. We say this every week because we want you to know it. We have terrible memories. We want you to feel affirmed, anchored, and empowered, affirmed in the belovedness uh, uh, that you are, the child of God that you are, anchored in the good news that we share together each week, and empowered to take that good news into the world, to live out our mission, which is God's mission, to love where you are, affirmed, anchored, and empowered. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey or on no journey at all, you have a place here at the local church. There's space for you here. There's room for every story here. And, uh, and, and, and we, uh, we want you to bring your full, authentic self. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, would love to do that. Uh, if you're participating online this morning, special welcome to you as well. Um, uh, especially those of you who looked outside the window, saw the rain, and they were like, uh-uh, uh-uh. I feel you. I feel you. We're glad you are here. We're glad all of you are here this morning. As we begin, let's just be quiet for a moment. God of the ages in Scripture, we hear stories of people like us, ordinary people, people who longed to know you, people who longed to follow you, people who made mistakes, people who tried to grow, old, young, native, immigrant, new to the faith, lifelong believer. In Scripture, we hear stories of people like us. So just as you walked with them, Help us to hear and remember all the ways that you walk with us. We are listening. We are grateful. We are yours. Amen. Before we look ahead, we've got to look back. And that's our work together this morning. Our series begins with what's called Matthew's genealogy. You can't have Christmas without it. I remember uh, when, I was, uh, when I was new to this whole Jesus thing, I was hungry to learn more. I was eager to, uh, to sink my teeth into the Bible. Everything's new and exciting and fresh. And so I asked somebody, where should I start? What should I read first? The Gospels, they said. The Gospels, that's a great idea. The Gospels are basically the biographies of Jesus. Maybe you've heard me call them the narrative retellings of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, but when we say the Gospel according to, it's essentially what we mean. What we mean, these are the biographies of Jesus from the perspective of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's a great advice. It's great advice in theory to start with the Gospels. If you want to know more about Jesus, go right to the source, right? Start with the stories about Jesus. It makes a lot of sense, except when you begin with the very first Gospel, the Gospel according to Matthew, and you open it up or pull it up on your phone, the very first thing you see in chapter 1, verse 1 is an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, we're doing it. 
We're doing it. It's an interesting way to begin. I don't know that I would choose it. I mean, A Wrinkle in Time has it was a dark and stormy night. You know, A Tale of Two Cities has it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It's not quite Tolkien's in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. But instead, right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we get an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. And if that's not gripping enough, it continues with verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and the father of Aram. And before you get to the end of it, you've already fallen asleep. Or was that just me? Was that just me? It's a good time. It's a good time. I mean, only once you've slogged through it all do you get to the birth of Jesus in verse 18, finally. Maybe you've done the same thing. Opened your Bible to Matthew, felt excited to begin, and just then ended up deflated like the inflatable in my front yard right now. Skipped all the names that are hard to pronounce to get to the good part. Maybe you're not sure what to make of the names. Maybe you just want to get to the good stuff. But here's the thing. This genealogy in Matthew actually serves an important purpose. There's one in Luke 2, but we're focusing on Matthew's genealogy today. When we think about genealogies, when we send off our our 23andMe swabs, go digging on Ancestry.com, we're asking the question, who am I and where did I come from, right? That's essentially what we're after. Who am I and where did I come from? We're looking uh, for the stories and the people that, that help make sense of who we are. And Matthew's doing the same thing here. At the heart of these 17 verses is an attempt to answer the question, who is Jesus and where did he come from? Who is Jesus and where did he come from? But the thing about Matthew's genealogy of Jesus is that it's not a straight line. It's not as as clean and clear cut as Ancestry.com family tree would be. If If you dig in, you'll find that there are some interesting additions some omissions too, some Brunos in the story that we don't talk about, but, but Matthew is painting a particular picture here. He's telling a particular story. And that's because in the ancient world, genealogies were a common feature of religious life and a common feature of sacred texts. They served a number of important functions. They provided legitimacy to those who claimed power. They helped to make sure that inheritance and property were passed down rightly from generation to generation. And they also told a story. They're not necessarily going for a 100% accuracy here. They're not here longing, or they're not here for, for the genetics or the biology, but for the story. For the story. Because when you dig in to the people who make up the lineage and you uncover the stories of these people, A story of its own begins to emerge, and that's what Matthew is doing here. This is the setup. This is the background. This is the tradition that is passed down from generation to generation to get us to this point that articulates who Jesus is and where he comes from. And the story becomes clearer when you zoom out and realize that Matthew's genealogy of Jesus features 42 names organized into three sets of 14. From Abraham to David telling the story of Abraham, the patriarch of the Hebrew people, blessed to be a blessing, to David, the anointed king of Israel, who seemed destined to bring God's reign to bear in the world, but but the covenant of God was broken, leading to Jerusalem's fall and the Israelites' exile in Babylon, which is what we see play out in the next 14 generations, from David to the exile. 
And finally, we get the final 14 names of the 42 from exile to Jesus. By beginning with his story, by beginning his story with this genealogy, Matthew is making a theology, is not just tracing the, the, the lineage of Jesus from Abraham to, to Jesus, but, but he's making a theological claim that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Hebrew people's hope, the fulfillment of God's promise, that he really is the long-awaited Messiah. I can't do much better than historian Diana Butler Bass, um, and here's how she puts it. She says that Matthew is trying to say, uh, uh, that the claim is trying to make a big and bold claim directed toward a Jewish audience seeking both political liberation and spiritual empowerment, that's the Jewish audience, during a time of oppression. Matthew proclaims that this Jesus, whose story he tells, embodied both King David's royal authority and the covenantal authority of Abraham. All of God's promises to Israel are fulfilled in Jesus. This is what Matthew's getting at, who appeared to be the son of a carpenter, but was in actuality both king and savior. All of God's promises to Israel are fulfilled in Jesus. This is the story that Matthew is telling with the line, with the genealogy. A big and bold claim. It's what you see when you zoom out. It's what you see when you zoom out. But we shouldn't Take this big picture into account without zooming in, too, to discover some of the people who, with their lives, made Jesus' life possible. Because when we do that, we meet people like Rahab, a Canaanite woman, protected Israelite spies in, Jer- in Jericho, and, and without whose help, they might not have entered the promised land. We hear the story of Ruth, a Moabite woman who embodies risk-taking said love, comes to marry Boaz, with whom she gives birth to the grandfather of David. And it's David, a man after God's own heart who kills Goliath, later becomes king and writes the Psalms, legend says. But it's also David who commits adultery and then tries to cover it up by killing the woman's husband, Uriah. And it's in fact Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, who also finds herself in this lineage who withstands abuse, survives the murder of her husband, and helps make sure that her, hus- that, that her son Solomon uh, uh, accedes to the throne. There's also Asaph, who is said to have collected the Psalms, and Amos, the prophet, who called for justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And there's something to be said, too, I think, for the fact that, that the lineage comes through Joseph who adopts Jesus as his own, and we catch a glimpse of how God works to bring family together in all kinds of ways. And so when we zoom in, when we zoom in, we see the expansiveness of this lineage and its inclusion of women and Gentiles and and discover that those who feel like they're on the margins have a place in the story of Jesus. We see people who suffered abuse and experienced trauma so that we might know too that we're not alone in ours. Matthew names those who have triumphed, but also those who have endured shame. And so those of us who feel like the worst thing is the last thing can find some hope in this story, in this line too. That perhaps our lives can still point to Jesus, that there's still meaning, there's still hope for us. And we see how God grafts families together in all kinds of ways. 
as we remember that we too have been adopted into the story. The story is not our own. We've been adopted into it. If you've ever been around a Thanksgiving table and thought there's no way any family could be as complicated or as challenging as mine, as strange as mine, I'd like you to meet Jesus. He says, hold my wine. Because there's beauty here and there's complexity. The fullness of humanity on display in these 42 names woven together like a tapestry, all pointing to Jesus. We discover in and through this genealogy from generation to generation that indeed in Christ, there's room for every story. And that includes you because we are woven together. Are you with me? One thing I noticed in preparing for this series from generation to generation that I, that I hadn't noticed before, although it's right there, right there, is that, that the word generate is in the word generation. The word generate is in the word generation. In fact, the root word of generation is gen, which means origin or birth. And so when we think about this series and this lineage, Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, We shouldn't miss the reality that in each generation, as the story unfolds, as each name is read, as the tapestry is coming together, something new is emerging. Something new is being born to make a way toward hope, toward Jesus. Like the Christmas lights that we add each and every year at our house to our display. Every new story from Abraham to David to Jesus, builds on the one before. God at work in each story, in each person's ordinary life to bring something extraordinary to bear. In your life, to bring something extraordinary to bear, the salvation, the redemption, the hope of the world. So if you've ever wondered if your life had meaning, if your life had purpose, if there, if there was hope for you yet, if you've ever wondered whether God had a plan, a desire for you, if you've ever wondered if there was still more for you, there's good news here in this genealogy. That God is building on your story too, even now, celebrating, honoring your past, your history as beautiful and complex as it may be, and doing something extraordinary in and through each and every one of you each and every one of us. So as we lean into this season of Advent, sit with this question. What's the new thing that God is generating in and through you toward hope? What's the new thing that God is generating in and through you toward hope? If you want to sit and talk about this with me at any point, I'd love to do that with you. That's one of the joys of my life. But really pray about this question this week and throughout this series. What's the new thing that God is generating in and through you toward hope? From generation to generation, there's room for every story. That includes yours, ours. Thanks be to God. Amen. If you love what you hear, share this episode or send it to someone who could use a little good news this week. We'd also love for you to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It's an easy way to share the love. You can learn more about the local church at our website, growlocal.church, or just come see us one week. 
Thanks for listening and love where you are.